I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich full life. The last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. And the best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 70 of Talking Golf History. In the annals of golf history, it is hard to dispute that the most important golfer in all of golf history is old Tom Morris. He won the Open four times. He helped popularize the game with his rivalry with Willie Park. He created golf course maintenance programs that still exist today, and he designed over 100 golf courses and was the father of one of the golf immortals, young Tom Morris. Today on our show, we welcome perhaps the most preeminent golf historian in the world, Roger McStravick of St. Andrews, and Stephen Proctor, author of Monarch of the Green, Young Tom Morris, Pioneer of Modern Golf, to discuss the history and legacy of both old and young Tom Morris. It is not lost on me that we are recording this show a mere two weeks after Tom Morris's 200th birthday, and one week away from the 149th plane of the Open Championship. This is part one of a two-part podcast. In this episode, we will focus on old Tom Morris, his relationship with Alan Robertson, his rivalry with Willie Park, and the birth of the Open Championship. In part two, we will dive into both father and son, old and young Tom Morris, and how they help shape the game we love and play today. A word of caution, the audio from St. Andrews was at time a bit glitchy. I did my best to clean it up, and I promise you, it's worth the listen. Now let's join our golf historians for this very exciting show. It is with a sense of awe and admiration that I welcome two of my favorite golf historians and authors to the Talking Golf History podcast, Roger McStravick and Stephen Proctor. Welcome to Talking Golf History. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great to be here, Connor. I'm really overwhelmed. I think you both know how much uh, I love St. Andrews and, of course, the Morris story. Uh, and Alan Robertson, I think we'll jump into a little bit, too. The next major is the Open Championship, which makes this very special for me, which is my favorite major. Roger, I, I'm sure it's your favorite major. I can't imagine it's not. Yeah, and, yeah absolutely. There's just something about the excitement of the Open, you know, the history of it. And, and just I, you can see it when players win. Uh, and they look down at the trophy and they see Tommy Morris, you know, name on the trophy and Tom Morris's name on the trophy. They realize they've done something really special. How about you, Stephen? Oh, absolutely. It's the original. Obviously, there wouldn't be professional competition had it not been for the start of the Open. So, uh, you know, I always look forward to the Open the most. Uh, I've been known to set my alarm for 2.30 in the morning and watch every shot. So, yeah, I get obsessed about the Open, as everyone does, or should. And, and Roger, uh, if you could remind us, you live in St. Andrews, is that correct? I do. I, I live um, about three miles away, uh, so, but, but 60 seconds from my drive, I can see the sort of Hamilton Grand um, 
and you know next to no time I'm, I'm in town so it's a lovely mix of being what four minutes from town and uh um, and yet I'm out here, we have a couple of cottages knocked into one and we have a little bit of woodland as well. So it's very idyllic and peaceful um, for writing books. And if you can imagine this, folks at home, when you're listening to this, uh, Roger, before we started the show, you said the weather was beautiful. It's 11.30 a.m. there and you're not playing golf on the old course today. That is so true. Um, but but I, I, I am thinking of little else. <laughs> I'm looking after my children, but I'm actually thinking about why am I not there? <laughs> I'm sorry if we're part of that problem. <laughs> no, happy to be here. You know, chance to talk about Tom and Tommy. Absolutely. Uh, before we dive into the history of the Morris family, I was wondering if you both could tell the audience about your most recent book. So maybe we'll start with you, Roger. Uh, yeah, my it's called Sanders, The Road War Papers, and um, it's about a uh, court case in 1879, and there used to be, the links used to go right up to Tom Morris's door, and um, the town council wanted to allow a road along the side of the 18th, and um, one town councillor took them to court, John Patterson. Um, and what's fascinating, what I found in the research, um, and I came across this accidentally, was pre-trial statements and in-court statements. So it was Tom Morris being cross-examined in court and all the great and, and the good. Um, and, and the book was originally going to be called Robot Paper Statements. Um, it just got bigger and bigger. But the to hear firsthand from people in 1879 talking about their earliest uh, memories of the links uh, was truly special. And I, I kind of didn't want to get in the way. I wanted to give that as, as full a read as possible without any sort of dilution. Um, and it was just wonderful to hear about Tom Morris talking about his earliest memories by Alan Robertson and solving a few mysteries that, that we've been sort of guessing at until this point. And were you aware of his statements originally before you, you know, as you dove into this? Was that something you discovered or was that something that propelled you to write this? Um, I discovered them and by accident, really. Um when I was researching uh, Sanders and Epsil Tom Morris, um, and Katrina came over to me and said, "We know you're working on Sanders' links. We, we have this box. We don't really know what it is. Would you like to have a look?" And of course, I said yes. And then when I opened it and I saw statements from Jimmy Anderson and Daw Anderson and Tom Morris and all those Open Champions and the Great and Good of 1879, you know, I nearly cried. You know, so. Um, so, but I knew this was 2015, and I knew I was going to come back to do this book. And honestly, I just thought it was going to be the statements were so full and so detailed. I really thought I would just do the statements themselves. And then, um, just a, a friend, um, Peter Lewis, Jordan said, "No, you have to explain these these important points because they're actually um, game changers," you know, and. People might not realize it. So then it got bigger and bigger. But uh, yeah, just honestly, just in his own voice, talking about when he actually started working for Alan Robertson, you know, it was just just a joy, really. Um, and I, I put a lot of statements in the book, but um, I left probably a third out, you know, so because I was on 120,000 words. And I just had to, yeah, I just had to, you know, because you could just go on forever, you know, a Stephen will know as well, when do you stop the research, you know? So 
And at some point, you need to give pe get people around you to pull you away from the computer like an intervention and, and just put it out there and, you know. Now that had to be a fascinating dive into their voice, right? I mean, how many... How many statements do you get like that in, in St. Andrews that far back that give true voice to some of St. Andrews, not really founders, but, you know, the their key figures in time? Yeah, and, but also these are the people that made the changes uh, that, that, you know, we see the landscape of St. Andrews and we think, well, that's how it's always been. But it's not. The first hole is completely artificial. You know, the first hole is reclaimed, it was a beach basically, and they took the rubbish from the town to create the, the first hole. But in these statements was the carter who took that rubbish from the town and put it on the beach. I, for the last sort of while, I find it interesting, you know, um, to hear their voices. You know, somebody said, oh, I remember the first house being born and built on the um, owned by Mr. Clark, <clears throat> and that's Clark's Wind, which became Granny Clark's Wind. I just find that that sort of um, detail amazing. That's so amazing. So, Stephen, how about your book? Tell us a little bit about your book. I think a lot of people probably heard about your book on the show. Tell me about the book and some of the news coming out, the new news about how they can get yeah, it. So, I, you know, in April 2019, I put out Young Tom Morris, Pioneer of Modern Golf, the uh, Monarch of the Green. And that book is out in paperback today from Berlin, which I'm excited about. As and, of uh, today, like today. As of today, it was released yeah. today as a paperback. And, uh, you know, it, it was supposed to come out uh, last year, but uh, during the coronavirus, obviously that, that was not possible in the middle of a global pandemic. So it, it got delayed to this year. So I'm excited that it's out now. And uh, I, I think your audience knows and Roger knows, I sent another manuscript to Berlin that is a story of the generation that follows the rise of young Tommy. And I hope they like it, but I haven't heard back from that yet. Uh, so we'll see. The waiting period is always fun to see whether they want it or whether they feel like it fits their needs. In the royal and ancient history of the game, uh, is there any name that should precede that of the Morris family and their importance to the game's evolution? Roger, I'll start with you and then go to Stephen. No. Tom Morris came to prominence when the game was exploding. You know, so he was the best player. But he touched um, so many elements of the game that it, it's almost um, inconceivable to think of golf without Tom Moore. Um, from, you know, a young boy, you know, he said that as soon as he was born, he was dying up. And from a caddy as a young boy through to being a player, and a really good through to working with Alan Robertson in his shop when he was 18, through to the whole, the Open Championship and winning that four times, and then on to designing courses and course maintenance. You know, he, he really did touch every element of the game um, and tried to improve every single element of the game, participation, including, you know, getting ladies playing golf, creating a, a course for them as well. So, um, so I, I think I think Tom is, and, and this isn't rose tinted glasses, you know. And, and as we'll come out, there'll be facts to back this up. But I, I think um, golf is very lucky to have ta had Tom Morris. You know, Connor, I I would agree a hundred percent with that. I don't think uh, there's any more important person in the history of golf than old Tom. 
as much as I as I love his son and think his son is a truly important individual. But you cannot, you know, obviously when I first started my new book, one of the first things I wanted to do was to learn more about how golf spread into England, which is what happened after the rise of young Tom and and old Tom in the open. And, you know, the very first place that golf starts in England is brought there by old Tom. Old Tom comes down to North Devon in 1860, the year that the Open is founded, and helps uh, 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 Isaac Gossett and his brother William, cousin, excuse me, cousin William, start a new golf course there. And eventually he comes down and builds a formal links there along Biddeford Bay, which is the first links built outside Scotland. No matter where you go, no matter what you look at in the history of the game, the pathway will eventually take you back to Old Tom and St. Andrews. And it's uh, it's amazing to me how ubiquitous his influence is on the game of golf. The other thing I think, too, is that there was something about the character of Old Tom uh, that shaped the game, I think, in a really important way. Um, he was a very honorable person, and uh, he believed in the old traditions of the game. And he had the benefit of living to be a very old man and so provided that bridge of transition into a new age where the new stars of the age could meet Tom and uh, talk with him in a shop and understand from him personally uh, what the game meant and what, how it should be played and everything. So he, he was really by far the biggest person to my mind. Let's dive into the history of old Tom Morris. Uh, Roger. How did old Tom Morris rise in importance? He wasn't born into a birthright of golfers. So how did, how did he come to be old Tom Morris? Well, actually, he was. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, sorry. His father uh, was a golfer in a caddy, and his, his granddad uh, were golf, was a golfer and a caddy. You know, and um, Tom basically lived on the links, you know, um, or dine at the links. Um, and um, um, that, that was his whole um, childhood, was being on the links, growing up on the links, trying to, trying to caddy and earn some money that way, you know. You know, the poor house was never too far away if you were working class. So um, uh, how did Tom rise in importance? Tom was growing up, um, it was a really exciting time. The, the the old St Andrews, the old that had fallen into decay, was going through a revolution thanks to um, Hugh Lamb play. Whole town was being developed along the lines of the new town in Edinburgh. Um, so it was a really exciting time of lots of development and lots of investment. You know, for the first time in hundreds of years. So he was growing up with, with that um, the all the change. Tom himself was, you know, he started with Alan Robertson when he was eighteen. But by 18, he would have been, a, a, you know, a fantastic golfer, you know. And we'll come on to his relationship with with Alan Robertson. But he was one of the best in St. Andrews. And because of the prominence of St. Andrews and St. Andrews growing in prominence uh, because of various reasons, economic reasons, you know, with um, Muirfield sort of going downhill and everybody looking towards St. Andrews for guidance, Tom was one of the best. And I think that's largely why Alan Robertson employed him, because Alan uh, was was a canny man, and he obviously wanted the best to be working with him, you know, and be his partner as well, you know. So yeah, so I think 
how did he rise in importance? I think he was he was born into a golfing family, and um, and and just and just it just grew from that really. Uh, and, and the exciting time when St Andrews is going through a revolution, Tom is one of the hottest, if not the hottest golfer. So, um, so yeah. So I think um, I think he was also very fortunate, born in the right place at the right time. But he still was a natural talent um, and an amazing golfer. Were you going to say something, yeah, Stephen? You know, Roger, I was going to add that I think two things that would, would also contributed. One is the incredible attention that was drawn to the great foursome that he and Alan played against the Dunn brothers of Musselburgh in 1849. And that was just a giant event. And, it, you know, Bernard Darwin writes about it a hundred and some years later. So I think that event really helped to catapult him into fame as a golfer. And it was he who pulled the match out for the two of them with his play. Alan had a rough day that day. And I think somebody in the crowd was yelling that wee body in the red jacket cannot play golf. You know, so uh, Alan was really having a tough time. But Tom hung in there and uh, that made a big difference. I also think that moving to Presswick while Alan was still alive in 1851 there, uh, did a lot to get Tom separated from the long shadow that was cast by Allen and St. Andrews and having crafted his own golf course, which I think most players of that era would say that beyond St. Andrews and many would say above St. Andrews at that time, probably, although I would disagree with them. Presswick was the greatest test of golf uh, that existed in the early championship age. It was a very difficult test of golf and an incredibly creative and crafty course and uh those two things i think also contributed enormously to uh tom becoming tom and a lot of that was from the support of james ogilville farley and uh and you know obviously tom acknowledged that by naming one of his sons after him yeah i think and and definitely that relationship with farley um was unique and it it showed the character of tom that he could uh, mingle freely with with the upper classes as much as he could mingle freely with the caddies who can't afford a pair of shoes, you know, um, they have no shoes on, you know, but Tom could traverse across both worlds. And, and honestly, that was, that was a gift that not many working class people had, like Jimmy Anderson won three open championships, but he couldn't mingle freely and be accepted or have a statue put up on the wall when they died or have a full salary paid when they retired, you know, uh, Tom Tom was um, was unique in that respect. You know, he could traverse classes. Roger, what do you think it was about old Tom Morris that that gave him that confidence to mingle amongst the classes? I, I think you're born with it. I think you're either, you know, with he had a kindly nature, um, and I think um, he, he didn't be anyone other than himself. So I, I think I won a lot of people over, you know. Um, never of anybody having a cross word about Tom. Um, I think when he he did the um, the ladies course, um, someone complained about him looking like a tomcat because he was very proud of it and he was seen there, you know. But uh, you know the Himalayas. Uh, when I talk about the ladies course, but I, I just think he was he was a gentle, kind man, and that's what. That's why people like Ovi Fairley took to him. That's why he was able to meet Prince Leopold. 
the Duke of Albany. So I, I think it's, it's amazing how far a bit of kindness will take you. And he, he's he, a great he, listener, too. You know, Horace Hutchinson has a wonderful story uh, in his memoir about people who would bring their problems to old Tom. And old Tom would say, hmm, hey, hmm, hey, just listening to them, not really offer any advice, uh, but just acknowledge. And they uh, that did a lot for everyone. And, you know, I, there's a wonderful, it. wonderful story in Freddie Tate's memoir about uh, hit a shot so far offline that it pierced uh, a bystander's top hat and went right through the top of his hat. And uh, this was in the age when, uh, as Horace would say, uh, Freddie's ambition was to drive all the holes at St. Andrews in one. And uh, so some of those went a little sideways. Anyway, he goes to old Tom to bemoan his fate. And Tom replies, ah, Master Freddie, you may be very thankful that it's only a top hat, no oak coffin you had to pay for. So he would always have something funny and witty to say. And he was a great listener to everyone's troubles. So do you think it was that confidence that, helped him get out of the shadow of Alan Robertson. It sounds like Prestwick was a big play in cutting his own cloth, if you will. How did he get out of the shadow, the great shadow, mind you, of Alan Robertson? Yeah, Alan's, Alan cast his shadow. He was very protective over the title champion golfer of Scotland because he was the champion golfer. And even Willie Park challenged him. And I have a lot of sympathy with Willie Park because he was largely being ignored because he was so good. Um, so Alan was very protective of of that um, of that title. But the, the thing the thing about Tom, you know, you see it a lot. People saying he, he was his he was Alan's apprentice and he only started when he was fourteen, and that's that's not true. He started when he was eighteen. Um, and by 18, Tom Morris was already a fantastic golfer, will know how to make feathery balls, you know. So so this master and apprentice, I don't really buy into that. They're only five years difference age-wise. And I see them more akin to, like, the best golfers coming together and, like, if we partner up, we're going to win everything. And, we're go- and, and they did. Um, and they made a, a seriously good living out of it. Um, you know, they would get... They said ten percent, you know, of the of the what was being played for. For example, that eighteen forty nine match was being played for four four hundred pounds. They would get forty pounds, so twenty pounds each. But twenty pounds each is equivalent to four or five years salary, you know. So, um, so yeah. So I I think there's more than just this master and servant, and I think the move to Presswick was just the best thing for Tom. Because although I'm sure when he arrived at Presswick, um, there's not many people on the course. And, uh, you know, it's not that buzz that's around St. Andrews with all, you know, the, the lords and all the gentlemen golfers coming to play and the betting and all the atmosphere around the golf parlor, which was um, Alan Robertson's shop. Um, he must have had a, a dark night of the soul going, what on earth have I done, you know? Um, but he did gain an education on how to build a golf course where just by physically doing it. He learned golf course maintenance just by doing it, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think um, I think the move um, was probably the, the thing that freed him. But Tom, 
I don't think Tom saw Alan as as a shadow. Really, I think I think I think knew. He said in, in later years, in an interview with Everard in, in 1899, he said that he could always get the better of Alan. And um, uh, and, I, I, and I think he, he did. He genuinely thought that the shop could be done better if you do more modern golf balls like the Goody Ball. You know, and Alan Ross didn't, didn't make clubs. Tom wanted to assemble clubs is, is the proper way of saying it rather than a club maker. So, yeah, so I, I, I think... Um, the relationship could be best described as friends because in that 1899 interview, Tom kept saying, my friend, Alan Robertson. And I think that's the best way. And it just, it came the natural, it was going to have a natural break anyway, I think, because Tom just, it was evolving and he was, he was on a different level of thinking than Alan who had the weight of his family's heritage, the hundreds of years of ball making on his shoulders. Yeah, I think Tom was a more progressive person. You know, he was more forward thinking, I think, than Alan and, uh, you know, foresaw the need to manufacture newer balls. The fact that the ball would replace the feathery much more so than Alan. And I think your description is correct, Roger, that that weight of family history is a lot for a guy like Alan Robertson. Uh, whereas Tom didn't really have that, even though his father was a golfer and quite involved in the golfing affairs of the working class before his son was uh, even born. But uh, so um, the other thing, it probably didn't hurt Tom that Alan died at a relatively young age and left Tom as the supreme player unchallenged at that point until just not that many years later when his son came of age. In the employ of Alan Robertson, uh, through their friendship, how did Alan Robertson help shape Tom Morris as a golfer, as a golf ball maker, and perhaps even as an architect. Any thoughts on that, Roger? Um, I think now if I'm thinking back to the days when, when at Lurgan Golf Club when I grew up, and when I was 11, 12, and looking to the 17-year-olds and thinking how brilliant they are. You know, I want to be like that, you know. Um, and that you know, so when I was playing off five, you know, they were off scratch and minus one and stuff. And I think he, he would have had that adulation of Alan initially, but I, I just when he he starts working for him, he's already this brilliant golfer. Um, and I I I, I see um, I see Tom learning from Alan in many ways and chuckling at his you know his gamesmanship because he was known to pretend that he'd hit the ball really hard and he, he hadn't really and or played a different club you know and all the shenanigans you know and he would chuckle at that i'm sure you know but um alan was the champion golfer and he was the champion golfer because he was so good and he was so so tom would have been in the company of the person who's the best golfer and that undoubtedly uh, had a, an influence on him um, and he, he, he probably would have learned a few tricks on the way. And, and Alan was definitely much, definitely in the mold of his father, who had a reputation. Um, uh, one, one of the poems said that um, the eldest of the cads, which was like doublespeak, you know, uh, meaning that he was a cad as well as a caddy. I think Tom carefully picked what was useful, what wasn't useful. And there's certainly some of 
of Alan's tricks, he wouldn't he wouldn't see that as being you know beneath him. He didn't need to do that. He was already such a great golfer. He didn't need to bamboozle people with but trying to mislead them on what club he hit. You know. So, um, but you know, and also he would have had a lot of fun with Alan as well. You know, I, I don't want to portray Alan as a dark character because he's certainly not. And then with the research I'm doing at the moment, you know, a, a very different character is evolving. You know, lots of people saying how kind he was, how how, um, how friendly he was, how jokey he was, you know. So um, I don't want to make too much of the gamesmanship, you know. So, um, But if you're in the company of the best golfer in Scotland and thereby the world, it's going to rub off. You know, probably also I would say that old Tom got some instruction from Alan and how to manage the golfers of a club and stuff. Because Alan had that position at St. Andrews and probably picked up a lot of the sort of great traditions of the game that he helped to carry forward from Alan. I think that's probably only natural at some level. Um, but, you know, they had both had great confidence in that match in 1849. You know, they're getting killed. Obviously, the Duns are way ahead of them. And somebody comes up and talks to old Tom in the middle of the match and says, uh, you know, do you think you're going to lose? And he says, nah, the Duns are playing a fine game now, but they could fall off. And there's no chance that me and Alan will fall off. So, you know, they uh, they uh, he was never never felt he was beaten. And that, you know, that supreme level of confidence is probably part of what makes it easy to mix with uh, lords as well as, uh, you know, caddies. It's just that he feels he's very comfortable in his own skin and he knows he's going to win. And so he's he's okay with whatever, how it how it goes. The one thing that didn't seem to rub off too much was uh, Alan's fashion sense. Is that fair to say? You, you mean the red jacket? I, I, I just read that he was a little bit of a peacock on the course. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And, and famously, they once played for the red coat and and, and Tom beat Alan um, and Tom tried to give it back to him and Alan famously spits me, you know, um, you know, just quite, you know, snidely, <laughs> you know. Um, so, so yeah. So I, I, th- I think I think that's fair. Yeah, I think Tom was far too mod- modest to be anything, to be a canary. Really, I think <laughs> Tom was, uh, you know, tweeding brogues, you know, and even in his pajamas, probably tweeding brogues. <laughs> <laughs> I love that thought of him. Um, <laughs> let, so let's let me ask you this question: um, Can you separate? the man, old Tom Morris, from that old grade tune of St. Andrews. Another way to ask that is, what if he had hailed from Perth? Would we have known his name today? What do you think, Roger? Tough question, impossible question, perhaps. We knew he was going to be a great golfer, but would, it, would his impact have been what it is? Yeah, no, I, I think it, it, it is difficult to answer because, you know, if he's living in Perth and, you know, and the workhouse is in the background and you know and he, so therefore he has to work on the the weave um handling weave like his father and grandfather and perth is not really rising in in, in any sort of prominence golf course wise then absolutely you know just because of social factors it could have been but um but undoubtedly he just was a natural born talent and you would like to think you could drop him you would have dropped him anywhere and he would rise to prominence, you know, with, with that natural skill. Um, it's just in St. Andrews, 
and pretty much this is still going today, you know, everything is geared towards golf. And I don't, I don't just mean the golf courses and the caddies and the, the hotels and the guest houses and the bars, but I also mean the schools. You know, my, my son gets golf history lessons, believe it or not. Oh, um, that's so cool. Honest, it is so brilliant. You know, um, uh, my, my, my daughter, who's in nursery, Anna, you know, um, I've been to nursery schools umpteen times to read little Tommy Morris. So uh, it, it is it is just 100% geared towards golf, you know. And then all the kids are encouraged to play golf. At PE, they're encouraged to play golf. The, um, the schools have inter-school competitions. The, the St. Andrews Links have Salja, the St. Andrews Junior Golf Association, uh, which is free or, or you know, free or, or about £30. But then that's golf lessons all year round and free balls on the driving range. Honestly, it's just um, it's just built for golf, and that's today. And it was back then; everything was geared towards golf. I think the biggest problem with the schools was trying to get the pupils into school because they were a chance to go down and caddy and earn some money for the family, you know. Um, so yeah, so the setup here, and and that's why Tom is this like perfect mix. You know, he's the right place, right time, in the one place that's drawing all the attention to golf um, and expanding the game. And Tom is the main man, you know. So um, I would love to think if we if we dropped him in Ireland at that time, he still would have risen to prominence. But, I, you know, who can say? You know, it's hard. Fame is one of those things where opportunity and personality meet, you know, and I think – Tom being in St. Andrews and at Presswick at the right times has a lot to do with who he became. But in the same way that young Tommy being born right as the gutty ball comes along has a lot to do with how he's able to do what he does. So timing is a big part of all things and location is a big part of all things. But I agree with Roger that his power, his, his game is so overpowering even as a young man uh, even though it would eventually be overpowered by his son, which he would be the very first to admit. Uh, but still, you know, you have to think that in that age, a golfer of that magnitude will get recognized and probably maybe brought to St. Andrews by the person who happens to play with him on the North Inch of Perth and realize now here's a golfer. We got to get him down where the other golfers are. So you never know what might have happened. But uh, timing and location are a big part of all things, I think. Roger, there's a famous story from golf history about the breakup between Tom Morris and Alan Robertson, which centers around a new technology. Uh, can you share that story and perhaps how much of that story is lore versus fact? Oh, no, it's, it's 100% true um, uh, that Tom was out playing with, um, I think it was John Campbell of Glen Saddle, uh, but he was out playing a game and uh, and the backdrop to this, I should say at the beginning, is that Alan Robertson's family for hundreds of years have been feathery ball makers. And and he is staunchly proud of that heritage. So the but the new ball comes in, the goody the goody ball, and Alan is furious. He sees this is gonna it's gonna ruin his business. Um <clears throat> and was known to try to find them and burn them. Um, you know, that's how enraged he was. You know, he's acting completely out of character 
and acting really over the top. But it was such a th- he saw it as just a, a threat because um, they were much cheaper, um, and he was very vociferous about this. So Tom's out playing, um, and in his own words, he got stinted balls. He ran out of feathers, and Campbell said, "Try one of these hot new balls that could he purchase, you know." And uh, so Tom played with the ball in. And, and in his own words, he said he, he played a grand game in and, you know, played the, and played played well. Um, unfortunately, what happened next was that Alan came out and when he learned that um, Tom had been playing with this new ball, um, he, he wasn't happy. And he didn't say anything there on the green. But then he, when they went back into the golf parlour at, at Sandy Hill, which is Alan's house, they had words about it, and and it was decided then that Tom should go his own way, and you know, i.e., he was fired. Um, and a lot's been made of this dramatic fallout of the two, you know. Um, but uh, but the true thing is is I th- I see it as a storm in a teacup because they they quickly get over it, very quickly get over. Yeah, it. that's I guess where I was getting into the lore versus fact is this you know, great fight that happens and old Tom gets fired and, you know, it, it, yeah. go on. Yeah. You, you know, if we were making a movie, we could, you know, we could, we could make it really dramatic and, uh, <laughs> you know, but I, I think Alan didn't say anything because he was on the 18th green. He came out to greet them as they were coming up the 18th. And he didn't say anything there, but Tom knew he wasn't happy. And the reason why he didn't make a scene or anything like that is because, you know, gentlemen it's, golfers, it's, Exactly. You don't want to do anything like that because it will, you know, with potential employers. Um, so, and it was when they were in the shop, you know, they had crosswords about it, um, you know. But I, I, I think, one, it was it was the perfect time for Tom, you know, because he's just growing and growing. You know, he'd been there since he was 18. He stayed for nine years. It was time to move on and, you know, evolve. Um, but also, if you see Alan Robertson's scrapbook, it, and I couldn't believe this when I saw it, because I thought it would. Because the impression I got that was Alan was a, a vain person, so I presumed it was clipping after clipping of Alan. You know, Alan did this and stuff, but it wasn't. It was clipping after clipping of Tom Morris. He was so proud of Tom, you know. And this, so this isn't the scrapbook of a jealous guy. This is this is a scrapbook of a super proud guy. So I. I I think a lot of it was made of the fallout, but they got over it very quickly. You know, there was a good living in the partnership, and they kept it going. And they remained friends. You know, when Thomas and Presswick, he kept coming back, and Alan went to Presswick as well. <clears throat> so I think, uh, I think, yeah, if we're making a movie, we'll make it some sort of dramatic scene. You know, um, but but the truth is, it was a bit more sober than that. You know, and uh, um, and they remained friends. They really did. You know, which which was nice because you know I sat with a blank page and it's just like okay, this, these these seem to be the facts. You know? The other so, thing uh, is the very next year they played in that foursome together, the great foursome of 1849. So okay. obviously, uh, you know, and that was probably their biggest moment together in a certain way on the golf course. Uh, so didn't didn't affect their partnership as players at all. And I think as I think you know, it was just one of those things where you come to a parting of the ways and that happens even with people who remain friends for a long time afterwards where it's time for me to go and do something different now 
And and how great it worked out for old Tom Morris. I mean, obviously, we didn't know at the time that Alan was going to uh, pass away early in 1859. But this kind of gives him a near decade head start in cutting his own cloth out there in the Gulf, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and then we enter sort of the, we're entering into the Willie Park era, you know, and uh, it's funny when there's, there's lots of attention given to those matches and not too much attention, a little bit little about Alan, but the dial moves. It really does. You know, Tom is the man and, and the matches with Willie Park just ignite um, interest you know, in the game, you know, and these are covered in the press, they're covered in the Scotsman, you know, the matches are. So um, I, 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 I think just as, as tragic as it was about Alan dying, and it was, and, and there might be a, famil- a family thing there because his brother died of liver problems as well. Um, it just, um, t- Tom was just on the ascendancy, really. So, um Yeah. Well, you know, that that actually is a great segue into the next question. Uh, Historical figures are often shaped by their rivals. Uh, Can you dive into the rivalry between the Morris family and the Park family? And, of course, the rivalry then between St. Andrews and Musselbra. Well, you know, obviously the two of them had so many great matches together. And, you know, Alan, what is it? Willie shows up, I think it's 1854. He shows up at the St. Andrews autumn meeting there uh, and challenges anybody who wants to play him. To a match. And uh, Alan's not going to do that. You know, my own view is Alan probably knew he would be beaten by Willie. Willie was a lot longer than him. And I think, in my own opinion, probably a better player. But Roger may disagree with me there. Uh, and, you know, he no one's willing to take up him up on it except for George Morris, which Tom's brother. And, of course, he gets completely annihilated. I don't think he actually wins any holes. He's uh, halfway through the thing. He's saying, for the love of God, man, just give me a half even. So uh, it was not a good scene. And then I think Tom felt called upon to defend the honor of his brother and accepted a match against uh, against Willie because of that. And there, like, as Roger said earlier, there's there are matches which extended into the well into the 1860s, multiple four. They had at least four great matches and probably a lot of other smaller ones. Uh they were the biggest events in golf by a long shot uh, at that time. Those those and the matches, um, the, the only thing I think that would be maybe bigger than them would be an equivalent foursome match. Foursomes was a much more popular game than singles at that time. and uh, But they were so important to the spread of golf outside of Scotland because they were great gambling events. Uh, and uh, the press wrote so much about them and everybody was betting a little bit of the rent money on them. It was a very, very stimulating thing for the game of golf. And, uh, but you know, they were rivals, but they were really friends too. As that's true all through history. I feel like, uh, you know, Freddie and Tate and John ball have a great match. And John, Freddie Tate announces at the end of the match, you know, I'd rather be beaten by Johnny ball than any man alive. And Willie would always say, I like golf best when I play against old Tom. You know, they uh, they liked the fact that they were tough rivals and uh, enjoyed it. And it was great, great thing for the game of golf. The, 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 the one match that I know about uh, was a foursomes match. And it was um, Alan, and I think it was a Mr. Hasty 
and Willie Park and another sort of amateur. Sorry, I can't remember his name. And they were one up. Willie Park was one up and his partner were one up on the 17th on the old course or, or the course. Um, and um, they were on the green in two. Alan was off the green in three and pitching onto the green from rough. So so he's one down and he's also looking like he's out of the hole. And somebody says, because you have to remember, there's lots of bets on golf at that time. And it's almost and bets within shots and bets, you know, um, on holes, etc. And somebody had mentioned that the game was over. And Alan pitched the ball into the hole. And the, what do you call the Willie Park and his partner were so ruffled that they three putted and lost. You know, Alan got a four out of nowhere, and then they three putted for a five. And on the next tee, um, Willie Park topped it into the burn, and Alan won that hole. Alan and his partner won that hole. You know, so you can never count them out. You know, so um, but that but. As I said, Alan was very reluctant. Stephen's spot on about that sort of, he was very protective over his title. You know, that's not to say he was a phenomenal golfer. And I think it would have been good to see them play, to see, you know, who was the best. Because the fact that he avoided the match only leads you to think, well, if you were so confident, you know, then why do you want to avoid this match, you know? But I, I know that Alan was enraged about this upstart, you know, Willie Park, just trying to take his title that he had worked so long to get. He wasn't he wasn't going to hand it over to any challenger. You know, the fact that this challenger was an amazing golfer was by the by. <laughs> I do think he was probably somewhat just in saying, hey, if you want to take on number one, you better beat some other people along the way first. And that's probably the best you can say for Alan in that circumstance. I think that's a fair thing to say is that if you're the top of the heap, uh, maybe you ought to take on uh, old Tom first, who, of course, not old Tom in those days. But take on Tom first and see how you do against him. And if you beat Tom, maybe I'll play you. Uh, but, uh, you know, that that's that's the charitable view, I say. You have the spunk, too, of uh, Willie Park challenging him in the press. And I just I mean, I love this period of golf where. You're, you know, we think of, I, I guess I think of, um, boxers today standing ringside when they want to challenge the, you know, the, the, for the title, they go to that match and basically, you know, take the mic afterward and say, you know, I'm going to take you down if you come after me. You know, I'm the best there ever was. And here's Willie Park using the media in, in, in a very similar manner, maybe not as robust. But just saying, I'll challenge Alan Robertson. I'm challenging old Tom, you know, not old Tom at the time, Tom Morris to a match uh, for 100 pounds or whatever that amount was. There's something about that upstart kind of moxie that, I don't know, appeals to me. Go ahead, Roger. No, I I love it too. And I also, I love the fact that that Musselboro was a hive of activity, you know, you know, and that could create a Willie Park, you know. Um, and I, I love the coming together. You know, I, I absolutely love match play. You know, I'd watch match play all day long. You know, stroke play I find quite hard to watch, you know, apart from the closing holes or something. But, um, I, yeah, just, just um, 
and, and the rivalry between the two, you know, um, and, and I think, again, it will probably be overplayed about the rivalry. I think it was probably more sober. You know, obviously, the, you know, they did get their, uh, make sure what I'm saying, they did get their golf balls kicked, um, you know, on the, <laughs> and uh, yeah, by rivals, you know, and, and rival crowds. You know, Tom had a horrible time in, in, at Musselburgh. And, you know, um, but, but that, that rivalry was so beneficial to the game. And, you know, because the more excited and the more, uh, uh, the press wrote about it then you know the more the money that was being bet on these games went up and up and up you know so everyone was a winner really yeah rivalry is the thing that underpins all successful sports i think you know in st andrews the you know st andrews golf society and the honorable company of edinburgh golfers were the two leading organizations in the world of golf at that time st andrews gradually gaining ascendancy as the honorable company had a lot of periods of financial difficulty and they moved from place to place, which disadvantaged them and gave, you know, probably one of the reasons that St. Andrews ultimately got the leg up is that they had more stability and they, they had the same golf course the whole time. Whereas, you know, you went from Leith to Musselboro to Muirfield with, with the honorable company and that, that, uh, that was hard. But, you know, when you think about the rest of golf history, right after the sort of Musselboro St. Andrews rivalry is the thing that gets the game, a lot of attention in the press along with the open and uh, starts to make the, the broader populace beyond the wealthy lords and landowners and things interested in the competitive game. And when you see the game move into England, I mean, it's England doesn't have golf starts getting its very first golf played by Englishmen in 1864. And less than 20 years later, people are always already hollering for a match between the best English golfers and the best Scottish golfers. And that rivalry between England and Scotland then becomes the driving force that helps the game come of age uh, and really popularizes the game uh, more, so, even more in Scotland and also in England. And, uh, you know, the, the, that next book that I've been working on has a lot to do with the, the rise of that rivalry and how it spurs the growth of the game. And I think of it as sort of a continuation of the original rivalry in a certain way, just uh a new rivalry to spur the game forward, St. Andrews versus Musselburgh, and now Scotland versus England. Yeah. You know, I, you think about it, without that rivalry, without the, the Parks versus the Morrises, the St. Andrews versus the Musselburgh, I guess you could question, without it, do we even have the Open, or does the Open start later? I mean, there was really no question, take away the death, uh, you know, with the death of Alan Robertson or, you know, this upstart Willie Park, who the, you know, champion golfer was when Alan passed away, if you take away Park. But with Park and this upstart Musabra, uh golfers that, you know, they, they I believe they what had six champions of their own open champions, that rival really, really sparks the interest and the attention of golf's upper class to start the open, don't you think? Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think every generation has, you know, its uh, has its rivals. You know, an earlier rival for for uh, Alan would have been the Peerys. But I, th- I think that the Willie Park Tom Morris was on a different level to anything that had ever been seen before. You know, because the game's exploding, and these are the two titans of the game. You know, Jack and Arnie, you know, going for it, you know, and these grand matches, you know, which were just, um, 
I, I think everyone benefited from those grand matches, you know, and it was just as the game was exploding, these are the kings of golf, you know, and it just, um, I, I'm not surprised the press were, you know, covering it and, um, and all the dramas of it and all the, the subtleties of, you know, the adverts that Willie Park put in the, in, in the paper or his backers put in the paper as well, you know, because sometimes it would have been the backer rather than Willie Park, you know, writing up an advert and putting it in a local paper sort of thing, you know, because it was the backers as well, because the backers could make a lot of money. Um, and this was their fun. You know, they didn't have internet. They didn't have TVs. You know, they had a really good thoroughbred horse. And that's, um, and that's they wanted to challenge matches and make a good return on their money. I, you know, what I, I find fascinating about that is both men brought the best golf out of the other. I mean, I love reading about old Tom Morris basically going into training, you know, to take on Willie Park, taking his game another to another level because Willie Park's challenging the supremacy as, you know, the golfing great, the, the champion golfer. I just, reading about that, it's just absolutely fascinating to me that they, you know, they were obviously, you know, they were friendly. Um, they were, but they were also rivals and both wanted to be the best golfer. And that they would challenge each other and really spur each other on to become that much better is, it's just really cool to read about. I think in addition to the rivalry between the Parks and the Morrises, the whole open thing is just an emerging idea that there needs to be something national. You know, that that preceded the open too. You know, in 1857, Ogilvy Farley organized that first match uh, at St. Andrews of teams of amateur golfers for a national championship that ended up being won by Blackheath. And uh, so I think there was this idea also that we needed to have the golf needed to be bigger than your own club or your own city, that it needed to be nationwide. And that was something that I think fairly recognized and maybe with help from Tom. It wouldn't surprise me if, uh, if Tom helped him foresee that Uh, Tom, like I say, if you look at him first course for ladies uh, always thinking ahead. So I could see him having some influence over Fairley in that way. I don't know if that's something you know about, Roger, but uh, but I sort of feel like this merging idea that it ought to be something bigger than any club or any city and is a nationwide thing uh, was emerging even before the Open started. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a perfect coming together of, of necessity for Presswick here trying to raise their profile. Um, and also... Uh, this unanswered question. So we'll, let's bring the two things together: raise Presswick's profile, and um, uh, and find out who is the champion golfer of the year. You know, and I love the fact that every year the trophy is presented, they use the same terminology. You know, it's the same thing they're playing for. You know, which is you know Alan's title. You know, and I think also that, that the pressure on Tom for that first Open was almost too much. I think the 1860 Open, uh, you know, he designed the course, you know, and it was his friend's title. He would have felt it like, this is my friend's title. You know, Alan was so protective over it. And I think the pressure just would have been colossal on him. And then when he lost it, he must have felt devastated that that he had lost his friend's title. So I can see that sort of rocky type scenario where, you know, he goes into training, crazy training for the next title and makes his comeback and, and wins it in 1861, you know, and then wins it in 1862 by 13 shots, you know. So, um, 
you know, once he had cracked the nut, he knew how to do it. So, um, but the first open championship, I honestly, it's that's the first part in the movie you know, where they where they have the bit where the person falls down and it all collapses and everything goes wrong. Um, uh, but you know, being the, the the brilliant that brilliance that Tom Morris was, he turned it around and won the next year and the year after that. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I think that was a perfect analogy in the first movie. Sorry to further the spoiler. I believe the movie came out in the 1970s, folks, but Rocky loses, you know, the match against Apollo Creed in the first movie. I'm sorry. If I ruin that movie for anybody, I know I'm getting, my son, interestingly enough, wants to watch that movie with me because I, I didn't tell him how it ended, but I just said, oh, you need to watch this movie. And he's interested. Um, I, I'll tell you Fantastic a, movie. a, 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 a aside here, my next guest on the podcast will be Mungo Park. Talking about your Park Morris rivalry, we'll have Mungo Park on the show talking about the parks and the legacy of Musselbra Golf, which I believe he's writing a book about right now. He, he is indeed. Um, it's going to be published by Berlin. Um, and it just, Mungo is a lovely writer as well. You know, he writes articles for Through the Green. And, um, and it's great that he gets, he'll get this story out because I think. Lots being made, you know, the cliches about Willie Park, you know, he's the showman, he's a braggart, you know, he's muscling his way in, you know, but you have to remember, most of this was written by um, uh, some St. Andrews friendly journalist, you know, so, um, uh, so yeah, it'll just be wonderful to get that story set straight, really, you know, uh, and, and beyond, it's also Musselboro's story as well. Yeah, I am uh, as much as I love St Andrews. I have I have an entire wall of my golf is dedicated to Musabra and in key and center. I'd turn the camera toward it, but I'm an idiot and I'd pull out all the cords and I'd lose you guys. But key to this is I have a a uh, sketch by John H Bonner uh, who did a sketch of Willie Park in 1890, and under it says Champion Golfer, and it has the four opens that he won. And as we share this podcast with the world, he stares kind of over my shoulder, uh, perhaps judging me by going for the Morrises before having Mungo on first, I think. Uh, Again. Yeah, right? it's like, I won the first one, guys. Come on. You can't overstate the importance of old Tom Morris on our game. He's been called the father of golf. And while he did not give birth to the game, he served as its heart and soul for decades as new technologies changed how the game was played, as those golfing heroes of old came and passed. For decades, he lived on, reminding the world of golf that at its core, we all play for the love of the game. He influenced future major champions, golf course superintendents, golf course architects, and golfers all over the world. He is, in my humble opinion, the heartbeat of this great game. And as the eons pass by, we should never let that heartbeat fade into the blackness of the forgotten. Yours in golf history, this is Conrad T. Lewis. <laughs> <laughs>